Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, the safe space created for Black women by Black women to strip away the taboo of talking about mental health. You'll hear from mental health professionals and advocates as well as Black women sharing their experiences as we break down the complexities, explore ways to heal, and support each other. My name is Ashley, I'm your host. Whether you're a seasoned regular or this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into today's episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. Oh, I'm, I hope everybody's doing well. Um, I hope you're having a good, good day so far. Uh, if your day is just starting off, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Um, but thank you so much for tuning into another episode. For anybody that is new to the podcast, welcome. Welcome to the fam. Welcome to the club. Um, I haven't made like a name for everybody yet. Like Rihanna has... Rihanna Navy, Beyonce's got the beehive. I don't quite know what we have. I know Horrible Decisions has whorehive. So there's like a, a range of different um, names. If you think of one, DM me an idea. Because right now, y'all are just the fam. But um, if you're new, welcome to welcome to the podcast. Um, this is where we really get into mental wellness and mental health. And today, we are going to be breaking down um, two specific uh, mental health disorders. And uh, we're going to be breaking it down with the one, the only, uh, Dr. Son Stevens. And welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's been, it's been forever. Actually, it I hasn't know. been forever. It's been like five minutes, but <laughs> no, it's been, it, Dr. Stevens has been on this podcast quite a few times. Um, she's one of the first people on first guests ever on this podcast so thank you dr stevens for sticking around it's been a couple of years now we still have yet to meet in person so at some point we gotta i gotta take you out to dinner like a really nice dinner <laughs> but um dr steven has has been a great uh just a great part of the podcast she's a licensed psychologist um she she is doing all of the things so i want dr stevens for anybody that doesn't know who you are that maybe this is their first time listening to one of your episodes. Can you tell them a little bit about who you are and what, what you do? Yes. So like I said, I am a licensed psychologist. I've been practicing for about 17 years. Graduated from the University of Notre Dame, went down to South Florida, completed my internship and residency. And um, most of my experience, you know, certainly was working in community mental health with families, children and families. Uh, and then I did private practice on the side and also some adjunct teaching and then research, and now I'm primarily focused on, um, I work primarily with veterans now, also have private practice and continuing to do research, you know, with African-American youth and understanding um, some of the ways in which we can intervene to help them to address, you know, some of the challenges that happens whenever they encounter very scary situations. Yes, I love that. And I love that you are um, working with uh, African-American youth and I know that you're working on some studies. And for anybody that doesn't know, on a side note, um, Black people are typically underrepresented in in health studies overall, but like mental health studies specifically. So when we talk about somebody that is doing the work, Dr. Stevens is very much doing the work um, and, and changing, the, changing the landscape of mental health 
um, specifically for us. So shout out to you, Dr. Stevens. I don't know if I've given you if I've given you your flowers on this podcast yet, but I do want to like officially give you your flowers, and I do appreciate everything you do um, for Black Girls Have Anxiety too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So for anybody, like I said, that that maybe this is their first episode with Dr. Stevens, we are going to do our little three minute quick fire questions. Maybe that's what I'll call the section. Quick fire questions. Quick questions. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We're just going to call it quick question. That's it. That's the answer I've been looking for. Quick questions. <laughs> but it is just a three minute um, segment where we talk about Dr. Stevens and I just throw a bunch of questions at her and she says the first thing that comes to mind and if there's a story behind it she's going to give it to us if not we're just going to move on to the next question and hopefully I'm not asking her the same question I've asked her in like one of the other 10 episodes that she's <laughs> all right Dr. Stevens you ready yes okay um if aliens beamed down to earth and asked you if you wanted a one-way ticket back to wherever they just came from. Are you going? No. Yeah, I'm not going either. No, I'm good. I don't know you. (laughs) I don't know you. (laughs) That is the best. I don't know you. That's the best answer. And don't Um, hurt us, please. Then don't hurt us, yes. I feel like all they can do is help because I feel like we've hurt ourselves enough. Like, all they can do is help us at this point. That part. (laughs) Um, If you could be a season, what season would you be? Oh, well, it depends on where I am. So, because I'm in the south, I love our winters. Yes. Yes. I mean, I love our summers. I love, I love, I love the year here, but, you know, I really love the winters here. I love the, I love the fall. Which one do I love? I love the fall. You love the fall. Which, which month do you love the best in Florida? So, I love October. I just, it's the changing of the season, you know? And then, like, February. You know, where the season starts to change a little bit. You know, it's yeah. a little cool, cold, you know. Yeah. Like, I, just, I, I, like I love, it just, it just takes me to a very different place. It's like I'm in a Hallmark movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I like January, February. I mean, I love the summer. Summer's my favorite. But right. I think in Florida, I think I like January, February the most. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you can throw on a little sweatshirt. Like, you don't need a full-on coat. But right. it's like, you can throw on your cute sweatshirt and... You can open the windows. Like you can't really do that throughout the year here in Florida. And it's just nice to get like a crisp breeze coming in. But okay. yes, I'm I'm with you on that one. Um, if you could live anywhere for a year and bring two people, where are you going? Who are you bringing? So how many people can I bring? Two people. I mean, people so, can come visit, but you can just bring two people. So who am I bringing? That's a good question. Who would I like enough that I would? <laughs> it's a whole year, so you better like them a lot. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, you know, more than likely, I probably bring my parents. You know, like they're, yeah. you know, they're like our best friends. You know, mm-hmm. so I probably bring them. You know, because you know, when, when I get on their nerves, they have space for me, and when they're getting on my nerves, they like they know. And we can just separate, you know? Yes, yeah. Who who gets on whose nerves first? Do you get on your parents' nerves first, or do they get on your nerves first? I probably get on their nerves first, because I'm, I'm a little, just a little, you know, just a little. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> just a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. 
<laughs> that is that is great. Where are you guys going? Where are you going for a year? Where do you want to take them? Oh, that's a good question. Can we find a a nice, beautiful like beach house? Yeah, okay. like yeah, maybe a nice beach house. You okay. know, I like Southwest that. Florida. I'm I'm so yeah. unoriginal. <laughs> no, that I mean, I would I would love to live in a beach house in Southwest Florida. That'd be amazing. <laughs> right. Um, would you, well, I won't ask you, would you rather live in the ocean or on the moon? Cause we know you're not going with the aliens. So no, I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> you know that I'll stay here in Florida. <laughs> on like, don't take me anywhere. <laughs> um, okay. Would you rather be an Olympic gold medalist or an a- astronaut for a day? Uh, gold medalist. Gold medalist. What gold sport medalist. are you playing? Track. Oh, do you, what, what are you running in track? Oh, probably the 800. Okay. All right. You got stamina. 800. That's take, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Or or four by four, you know? Yeah. That was always fun, you know? Yeah. Oh, I have, I have a lot of admiration for, for track and field. Cause I, I hate running. I mean, I played basketball for a long time, but I hate running, but it looks so pretty when people do it well. Like, yeah. Yes. Um, Name one cool feature that you would add to your car. A cool feature that I would add to my car. That's a good question. Um, Always, because I am just a little bit, but a lot, perpetually late. So I would... (laughs) Not even a little bit. (laughs) So if you're rated on me, I'm sorry. (laughs) But... This is oh, your warning. This is your warning. <laughs> right, right. To everybody for the year of 2023. Sorry. <laughs> but y'all have a flying car, you know? Okay. Then you'd be so, everywhere on time if that's the case. Right. I should be on time everywhere. Yeah. No traffic. You can't blame traffic at that point. Well, depending on when I leave, right? Because if I leave five minutes and it takes 30 minutes to fly there, I'm going to be late. You're going to be late. Yep. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, last one. What is the best dish that you cook? Oh, let's see. Probably either. Let's see what's good that I cook. Shrimp fried rice, a prime rib. I can Ooh, do both. That you sounds know? good. Yeah. Yes, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten dinner yet, so I'm. That's making my mouth water. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I've never seen them together, but they would be good together, right? Yeah, I was like, prime rib and the shrimp fried rice? Like, that could be a thing. I feel like right. I'm at, like a hibachi restaurant or something. Right? Yeah, I like that. Okay. All right, well, thank you. Thank you for, for playing along, Dr. Stevens. We are going to jump right into our mind game segment. And if you're new here in this little neighborhood that we've created at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, uh, the mind game segment is basically where I read a definition and of a mental health disorder and y'all can guess so we're doing it a little differently today where i'm going to give you the definition at the beginning and at the very end before we close i'll give you the answer so you got to stick around right i mean technically you could just fast forward if you're one of those people that like likes to know the ending of movies before you watch them (laughs) you can do that (laughs) or you can just stick around because it's going to be a great conversation today but let's get into this mind game question now um, and Dr. Stevens, you can't tell them because you, you're going to know what it is. <laughs> so 
this particular mental health disorder includes a combination of persistent problems such as difficulty paying attention, hyperactivity, and impulsive behavior. Uh, this can, it can lead to unstable relationships, poor work or school performance, low self-esteem, and other issues. Um, symptoms can start in child, early childhood and continue into adulthood. In some cases, it's not recognized or diagnosed until the person is an adult. Uh, the symptoms may not be as clear in children. Um, in adults, the hyperactivity may decrease, but struggles with impulsiveness, restlessness, and difficulty paying attention may continue. Um, the treatment for adults with this particular mental disorder is similar to the treatment for, for children. Um, it includes medications, psychological counseling, or psychotherapy, um, and treatment for any other mental health conditions that may be occurring along with this one. Some of the symptoms include impulsiveness, disorganizations, uh, disorganization, problems prioritizing, poor time management skills, problems focusing on a task, trouble multitasking, excessive activity or restlessness, poor planning, low frustration tolerance, frequent mood swings, problems following through and completing tasks, a hot temper, and trouble coping with stress. So take a wild guess and uh, put it in your back pocket, write it down, throw it in the group chat if you uh, listen to this with your friends. And we'll come back to this at the end and see if you're right. All right. Now let's get into the like meat and potatoes of this episode. So today um, I've been looking forward to having this conversation and I've kind of held off so I can have it with Dr. Stevens. Um, but I want to talk ab about, today we're going to get into two mental health disorders that tend to be, I don't want to say they're the most popular, um, but sometimes we see them in movies. Um, but I think sometimes they get a bit misrepresented and I even don't have like my head wrapped around exactly what they are, the symptoms, how they can show up in people. So today we're going to get into schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, I have, I've had a couple of people on the podcast that have bipolar disorder um, and we didn't necessarily dive deep into that particular part of their personality. Um, but today I really want to get into like what that looks like. And, you know, for somebody that has bipolar disorder, um, how, how they can show up, but also for somebody that maybe has a loved one that has it, or maybe a coworker that has openly stated that they have either of these mental health conditions, kind of just to get a better understanding of them. Um, so we're going to start it off with schizophrenia. Dr. Stevens, can you tell us like, what is schizophrenia? Schizophrenia is one of the um, most frequently diagnosed um, psychotic disorders. And a psychotic disorder is um, one in which a person is responding to perceptual disturbances. So in terms of things that they see, things that they hear, things that they taste, um, maybe things that they feel, like people oftentimes claim or complain about like a sensation of ants crawling all over them. You know, so it's, it's every sensation being um, distorted in a way that doesn't reflect reality. Um, and so, you know, so when we think about certainly like the hallucinations, which is what those are, is a complete misrepresentation of, of reality. It's not necessarily a slight distortion. 
Right. Of course, it also is accompanied by delusions in terms of beliefs. You know, certainly, typically, they may be grandiose beliefs about the person's ability or about another person's ability. If a person is a superstar or, you know, has super powers or super abilities, or maybe they believe in themselves or somebody else is Jesus Christ, you know, mm-hmm. or you know, God or some type of deity. You know, so like the grandiosity, which is also could be related to religiosity, mm-hmm. like a religious uh, delusion. I'm also certainly or delusion of self-reference where that also oftentimes reflects persecution or paranoia, where it more so turns inward when it's uh, self-referential in terms of like the radio is listening. And so maybe see a person engage in really odd or distorted behavior that doesn't necessarily make sense, you know, in terms of reality. Then of course we see like a complete distinct or distinction and dissociation between like what's happening here in their face in terms of their, their behavior. So there's a complete behavioral disintegration. So you may see a person engage in very odd behaviors, like repetitive behaviors that don't necessarily make sense, you know, to the naked eye, or maybe they're more so paralyzed or what looks to be like paralysis, like in terms of catacatonia. Catacatonia, can you, because I've read a little bit about catacatonia and my, like the way I envision it um, was like somebody that may just be in a corner and they're not rocking or anything, like they're not moving, almost like they're frozen. Mm -hmm. Is that like an accurate description yes very okay. much so. that's called like catatonic behavior you know mm. and so i'm trying to remember and one flew over the cuckoo's nest you know in terms of people you know if they had like a couple like several background actors you know who were catatonic you know who were just who looked to be paralyzed you know mm. like one patient i worked with he would always have like his leg would be like perfectly like perpendicular to the rest of his body and he would keep it like that for hours and then his wow. his the heel was almost perpendicular to his leg and almost wow. like parallel to his thigh. It was like, I had never seen anything like it, you know? Wow. Wow. Or, you know, and of course, like there's another movement disorder that's associated with a psychotic disorder or cataplexy. So it's like a wavy flexibility, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of people engaging. And it looks very odd, you know, in terms of the naked eye, but it's like, oh, 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 like a very flexible, wavy like um, behavior that people tend to engage in. Okay. Uncoordinated behavior that's typical in terms of what we describe as disorganized behavior. Okay. For people with um, who who present with um, psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia, and then of course there's the um, a movement, the a motivation, the elagia, the um, energia. So the absence of features. So lack of affect. So very flat affect. Inability to make decisions. Inability to show emotions, inability to uh, plan or do things. So those are, you know, so another feature of the psychotic disorders, particularly in schizophrenia. Mm. Can we dive a little bit deeper? Because I know you said lack of affect. So for anybody that's listening, that's like, I still don't kind of know what that means. Can you like describe what that means? Very much so. So oftentimes, like when we talk about affect, we, we talk about like the facial expression, but it's the general presentation, the physical presentation of the individual's body. So first of all, you look at the person's face. And so typically like when a person without um, psychological disorder, when they talk about things, they typically laugh. You see a lot of variation in their eyes and certainly in their cheeks movement, you know, certainly their mouth. You see what we call like wide and appropriate aspect. So you see a lot of movement. And, mm. and also the movement 
is consistent or congruent with their mood. Now, you know, certainly with a person who presents with, say, um, with the affect disorder in terms of a blunted or a flat affect, there's no movement. And so they could be talking about something that's very distressing. Maybe talking about the symptoms of schizophrenia that bothered them or that made them feel embarrassed. And so it's a complete, you know, so I can't even necessarily do it justice, but in terms of like when they talk about it, the only thing that you see moving are their lips and everything mm-hmm. else is very much like still, you know, you see no movement. They can make a joke, you know, oftentimes you know, certainly in the more severe forms, like you won't necessarily see that, but you know, certainly maybe with, with medication, they can make a joke and there's no movement, no laughter, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of their facial affect. And it becomes, you know, a bit dis- disconcerting when you look at that because you're like, oh, that's a pretty funny joke, you know? Yeah, you but you're not the- getting the reaction that in your head, somebody like you would be laughing and they would be laughing with you. And right. so you're not getting like those those facial movements that you're like the facial cues that you're used to. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Very interesting. So, yes, yeah, so that's part of the disorganized behavior that we see. Yeah. Can we, um, there was a couple other that you mentioned I know um, you said affect, and then I want to just go back to um, aphasia. Is that another one that you said? So not necessarily aphasia, but like abolition in terms of like not being able to have purpose, not being able to make decisions. Okay. You know, so like in terms of a person, um, like there's a complete disintegration between like what they want to do. And it can be something very simple in terms of like wanting to go to the store, but then they start maybe cooking, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, in terms of the thought process, in terms of planning what should happen next, the sequencing, the, ex- the higher executive functioning, that's completely blunted, you know, more ah. certainly more severe forms of, depre- of schizophrenia. And wow. so when the when the individual, I need to go to the store, I need to go to the store, I need to go to the store, and they may, you know, engage in something that doesn't necessarily make, you know, sense to like the average person. And maybe they're, you know, going to get their kids, um, play things, you know, in terms of like the items that they need. Yeah. And that represents, and that certainly speaks to the storylines behavior, but also it speaks to the inability to plan properly. Right. Okay. That makes sense. As far as like the intensity um, or like different functioning levels of schizophrenia, is there a variation um, in like different types of schizophrenia or different levels of it? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Certainly, like with this um, more recent DSM, like they have, they have the um, authors have um, removed some some of the distinctions, but they're still like that continuum, you know. And so, so you start off with your, your psychotic disorders, NOS, or your unspecified, and that's more so like where you have like one or two symptoms, but it doesn't necessarily meet the full criteria, doesn't necessarily meet the full duration, perhaps, you know. So maybe one or two symptoms. Then you have something a little bit more severe in terms of like up a specified. And of course, then that, you know, meets um, more criteria, but still doesn't meet full criteria. Then, of course, we move to like a brief psychotic disorder where a person may be due to. And actually, even before that, it's more psychotic disorder due to a general medical condition or substance use, which oftentimes, you know, certainly explains why individuals tend to have, you know, um, difficulty with um psychotic acting out because that's our number one um, culprit typically is Mm. substance use and then if not substance use then then we look at some type of uh, organic disease to explain that 
And then beyond that, we have what we call a Febreze psychotic disorder. And mm-hmm. this is more so um, what happens when a person may just have like a psychotic break, but then display or exhibit no other signs. And you have like a delusional disorder. And the mm-hmm. delusional disorder, that more so speaks to people who exhibit like these odd beliefs, but the odd beliefs typify their day-to-day functioning. You know, so perhaps like this individual um, believe that Brad Pitt is their paramour and Brad Pitt is waiting for them. You know, so the example of a delusional mm-hmm. disorder, everything that they do is planned around Brad Pitt. And this, and, you know, this engagement that's supposed to happen, you know, at some yeah. point in their um, and then I think beyond the delusional disorder, then then we started to get into like the schizophrenia. You know, you used to have schizophrenia form, but now they did away with that. But we have like schizophrenia disorder. But in terms of schizophrenia disorder, that's was much more severe than the others that I mentioned. You know, because again, it includes like two of those five features that I identified. But the most severe is a schizoaffective disorder, and a schizoaffective disorder that combines um, the schizophrenia but also a mood disorder. And so both of those disorders equally compete. However, mm-hmm. when there's a psychotic piece, the mood disorder is absent. When there's a mood disorder, the psychotic piece is absent. And so it's like where they both peak, they, they peak at very different times. You know, in terms of schizoaffective disorder, you can have like a depressed type or bipolar type. And bipolar, of course, includes the two poles of mania, in terms of hyperactivity, in terms of um, just over engagement in, in um, activities with high consequences for harm and distractibility, impulsivity, you know, pressure thinking, and then of course your depressed mood, sadness, low energy, X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's, wow, that's, that's a, that's a lot to, to take in. That's a, that's thank you for breaking that down first and foremost. Right, I'm gonna give you more than what you probably asked for. No, 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 no. Because I'm just taking it all in because um I think I've always had trouble kind of like wrapping my head around schizophrenia. So this is like a great opportunity for me to keep digging. Um I know you mentioned that sometimes schizophrenia, people that um may have schizophrenia may also be um using substances or may have some other sort of mental condition or not mental condition, but physical, like physiological issue going on. Is there ever a point where schizophrenia is triggered by a substance or can be triggered by a substance? Um, not necessarily schizophrenia itself, but, you know, so the psychotic disorder can be triggered, you know, by substance use, you know, so hallucinogens, there's a mushrooms, you know, like different hallucinogens that people take, you know, for some people, THC, the psychoactive um, agent in THC, um, and so there's a lot of controversy around that, you know, yeah. so, you know, you take that w- what you will, you know, yeah. so but there have been some, you know, in terms of evidence associated, like first um, episode, psychotic breaks associated with people trying, you know, THC for the first time. Yeah. You know? So, but more often than not, like it's typically like a hallucinogen that activates the psychotic disorder and then certainly then for some people that becomes their first episode it becomes a recurring episode and then more often than not at the age of 21 that's the prime age when we start to see the first psychotic break which coincides with what people experiment with drugs drugs yeah interesting 
Okay. And so the younger, so so that that's the modal time in terms of like most frequently occurring time or period when especially men as opposed to women show their first psychotic break that then predicts later episodes. Interesting. So that initial psychotic break that happens like in your early 20s can predict what it may look like moving forward. Very much so. So, so if you respond to medication well, Mm-hmm. you know speak to the ability you know certainly or or the resistance of psychotic disorder you know going into remission you know so maybe that psychotic that first psychotic episode being the sole and only one you know but certainly if it happens a little bit earlier that may speak to more of a negative prognosis so and of course that risk is elevated without treatment or under treatment or denial or certain cultural factors you know all the things that we've talked about over our different you know shows together yeah, definitely. And I, I did hear, and I don't have the resource like right in front of me, but I did hear that, um, particularly with like THC, if you, if schizophrenia runs in your family, then it's best to avoid trying different hallucinogenics, trying THC, uh, trying mushrooms or um, any of those, those recreational um, drugs that are floating around out there. Is that true as far as like the hereditary like yeah. relation with schizophrenia and being potentially triggered? Right. So like there is a lot of controversy, you know, because of course, you know, I think one, um, just in terms of just the um, infamy that THC, you know, is uh, afforded in our society. Yeah. So anytime there's any negative association, I think, you know, oftentimes people may just sort of jump on that, you know, so when the first couple studies came out, maybe like 20, 25 years ago, you know, it was a couple studies here and there, but it looks like it's more of a robust finding, you know, and so I say this with a grain of salt because I haven't read anything in the past, you know, year about this, you know, been doing a reading about other areas, mm-hmm. um, but like I say, not necessarily last year, maybe over the past two years, you know, I haven't done any recent readings. You know, but it seems to be, you know, certainly maybe more of a reliable finding, um, you know, certainly in terms of avoiding hallucinogens, certainly if there is a family history of a psychotic disorder. And I always say, you know, so if there's an immature disorder, because again, we're still learning about the genetic linkages, you know, because it's a linkage between um, schizophrenia and, you know, another disorder we're going to talk about today. Yeah. That was recently bared out, you know, over the past like 10 or 15 years. And that yes. was pretty astounding, you know, in terms of how genetically, how close um, we link these two disorders are. Yes. And we'll, de- we'll definitely get into that because I'm I'm looking forward to, to getting into that link. But I want to talk a little bit more about um, some of the misconceptions around schizophrenia. Like what are some that you've encountered and maybe some that you've observed the way society reacts to schizophrenia? Yeah. I mean, and certainly, you know, I think one of the most common ones is that the person with schizophrenia is violent, more often than not. You know, I mean, certainly the person who, you know, certainly is a first responder, you know, to people with um, psychotic breaks. Um, that's just not often the case, certainly anecdotally and also based on the literature. Right. You know, and certainly like more so, they tend to be more confused and scared, honestly. You know, and I certainly I think if a person does act out, and anger is because of that fear more often than not, you know, and certainly the paranoia speaks to the fear, 
the persecution speaks to the fear. And so I think, you know, certainly if you do have the privilege of work with a person, you know, certainly being able to, you know, understand and empathize with the person on that level of fear. And then certainly you can help to disarm them in order to help them to recognize the help that they need. You know, I think that's one of the main misconceptions. You know, so another misconception is the C word, you know, the C-R-A-Z-Y, you know, and certainly, you know, and that word, you know, certainly, and, and, and I think it brings about this misconception or brings about this, um, the, the mental health stigma, you know, yes. that, you know, pervades our society, especially in African-Americans in terms of Black Americans. Yes, 100%. You know? And, you know, and, and honestly, you know, because again, it, it externalizes a problem when the problem is more of an internal problem in a sense of that more often than not, there is a biological mechanism. There is a genetic connection, one, a genetic connection, or a biological underpinning in terms of maybe, um, <clears throat> in terms of neurotransmitters not being regulated, or certainly um, different portions of our brain, certainly not um, engaging in the right um, functions in order to process um, these different neurotransmitters the way that they need to. It's not necessarily um, an internal or a problem that we blame on the individual, but that's the way that, you know, we conceive, you know, schizophrenia in our society. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's really, and I think it's interesting to to hear even just that you said that um, people with schizophrenia are scared of like what's going on. And I'm curious, like, are people with schizophrenia that maybe they're in, and I don't, again, I don't want to use the wrong terminology, but is there, are they always aware that they have schizophrenia? No, not always. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, certainly depending on how severe the schizophrenia episode is, um, and so depending on what resources they've received, they themselves may not necessarily recognize what's happening, you know, because again, remember, it's a break from reality, you know, and so it's almost like, imagine like, you know, as you're falling asleep and that that point when you're like almost asleep, but you're still awake, but you feel like your body is suspended in there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense in terms yes. of like, so it's like that, that beta wave of sleep. Mm-hmm. Like imagine like that's where a person with schizophrenia is, right? But they're not able to touch reality in terms of the regrounding, you know? So like, let's say if somebody threw some water on you, you, you wake right up, right? For a person with schizophrenia, using this metaphor, they're not able to wake back up. They stay, stay suspended in that area and they're constantly trying to touch reality in terms of trying to tether themselves to reality and the way that they tether themselves to reality, you know, certainly based on our cultural norms, it's still very odd and, and disorganized behavior. But this is a way that they tether themselves to understand a process was happening in the environment. Can you talk about a little bit uh, about what that looks like as far as how they try to like reconnect back to to reality? Very much so. So like in terms of like going back to like more specific examples of a disorganized behavior, you know, so like, let's say like a person who believes that like one patient believed that this young child that he did not know at an elementary school was Jesus Christ. And so this person would um, trespass on school property in order to approach this child and pray in front of this child because this person believed all through and through that this child was Jesus Christ incarnate. Wow. wow. And so this was this individual's way of trying to reground himself to reality. 
you know, his reality. Right. And so for this little child, of course, he's it's terrifying. scared and fearful, you know, in terms of doesn't necessarily know what's happening. But for this individual, you know, and so again, this is this disorganized behavior, is the delusions of grandeur, it's the religious, the delusions of religiosity, it's certainly the self-persecution in terms of the individual, like they said, you know, so things that they needed to do in order to make themselves worthy, you know, to pray at the feet of, of Jesus. And so again, like, and, and that all represents like the way that the individual tried to ground each other themselves in reality. Mm. And as far as like when somebody is, has schizophrenia and, and let's say at this point they have either admitted themselves to the ER or maybe some, a family member has maybe called the ambulance for them or unfortunately in, in a lot of cases, especially for people that are homeless or they don't have shelter, they end up getting arrested. Like, what does it look like when they actually come to the hospital or when they receive treatment? What do they look like? And then what's, what does treatment look like at that point? That's a really good question. I think more often than not, they're really scared, you know? And so I think that fear turns into anger, you know, because again, you know, when you dealing with an individual who's been operating on fear and then certainly the delusion of persecution, <coughs> that's, excuse me, that's happening in the flesh. This person with a big needle is coming toward you. You're coming here to poison me. You're coming here to do what I've been telling them that you were doing. Right. You're validating this reality that everybody told me I was crazy to believe. Yeah. So of course, so it's fear. And then, you know, so the fear acts out to the fight or flight. And it's the fight oftentimes that we see. Sometimes we see the flight. Sometimes you see the freezing. Yeah. You know, and certainly, you know, and then because typically what happens is that they'll have a strong antipsychotic because the hospitals are able <coughs> hospitals are able to administer a strong antipsychotic, like a hell no. They'll give them a injection mm-hmm. and within a couple minutes, it's immediate. And so when you say it's immediate, are they then tethered back into reality? Is the psychotic episode over and they're like they realize what's happened or are they still in a state where they're unsure what's happening, but they're not aggressive anymore? Right. So that latter part, you know, in terms of, and when I say the effects are immediate, meaning they're more, they're calm. They're calm. Okay. But, you know, certainly in terms of their thought process being not reality based, that still takes, you know, more time, you know, certainly like with the antipsychotic, typically like with, um, pills or medication like Risperdal, Seroquel, Abilify, like those types of medications in Vega, <coughs> excuse me, in order to help the tether them back to reality. And that takes a little bit more time, you know, and, but immediately, like they're calmer. Yeah. And as far as administering the, that medication, is that for somebody that maybe, and I don't remember the name of it when your family member calls to have you admitted to a psych ward I, I don't remember like what it's called and i'm sure you so know. right so that's a, okay so when there's a family member who calls so that's involuntary hospitalization so it could be yeah. through a baker act the police um, baker act and then if you bring them to the facility itself that's through a professional certificate so you have a professional either md a psychologist psychiatrist um a licensed clinical social worker who evaluates that's my professional certificate and this of course is in florida in most other states, or then by ex parte, which is through court, where you present the case to the court and then to, you know, request an ex parte involuntary hospitalization. 
but generally we call it the baker act this is the, the baker, baker act. act i think that's the one i'm most familiar with and that's like a 72 hour hold or something like that i believe yeah uh, all of them are 72 hour holds it's just okay. different methods and it's up to 72 hours here in the state of florida meaning that so within 24 hours a professional ideally the psychiatrist has to evaluate you and that that's mandated so within 24 hours of being um hospitalized a professional has to evaluate to determine whether or not you can remain the other 48 hours okay and so they decide that you're not a threat to yourself through mental defect effect or through self-neglect then you're released because yeah. a lot of depression, they're not better well i mean that's not the point of this law is to keep people safe and so right that's interesting so i didn't know that i thought that the goal was to get them as better as possible in those three days but it seems like the it's just to make sure they're safe right. for themselves and for other people right exactly ah okay that's interesting so let's i want to get back into the treatment for schizophrenia so i know that you said the immediate treatment in like emergency situations is like administer administering the shot that calms them down but they're still not quite tethered to reality and then there's some medications that can be taken after the fact that take longer to get into effect now how long is that like a week is that a couple weeks and are they still in like under um are they still an, a patient at that time in the hospital or can they go home and, and administer the medicine themselves? So more often than not, certainly in, in an involuntary hospitalization, like they are released, you know, and so before they're released, they have to have an appointment with another provider in the community or if they're part of a hospital program, they have to have that, um, <clears throat> that appointment already set up. And so um, if not, then if it's a public hospital where they were hospitalize it, then they'll set up like a, a, a schedule for them to, to um, receive like another injection. So like through an Invega. So Invega is like a non-traditional um, or it's one of our newer antipsychotics. And so a person is able to you know, receive an injection. These are typically really good for people who are not compliant with taking medication, you know, by mouth. And so they would come in every 30 days and they get the shot, you know, every, I think it's, maybe it's a newer one where you get it like every week or so because there's also clozaril as well and so those are the newer antipsychotics and so those work really well with what we call the positive symptoms of schizophrenia in terms of like the hallucinations it reduces and eliminates the hallucinations you know people ah. sometimes still have some residual delusions you know now with the the um evolution the affect it's not it's so still good there. eliminating those. Like it's, they still have those, right? The traditional antipsychotics, like in terms of Respiradol, Seroquel, Haldol, like that's an older, older, older one. Like those are typically frowned upon because they create what we call the external symptoms, like the tremors, um, the cheese chattering, you know, so they have ah. really bad side effects that people don't like. You know, people find really difficult to manage, understandably so. Yeah, like um, and so and there is, is pretty much all over, you know, in terms of all over your um, your body in terms of these these like side effects. But they they work really well with again eliminating like the, the positive symptoms. Okay. Again, they do nothing for the negative symptoms. That's what the non-traditional ones that do a little bit more so with the non-traditional symptoms. I mean, with the uh, with the negative symptoms, like the delusions and things like that. Mm -hmm. So. So typically, like they'll they'll go 
like the traditional, if they're compliant, like Risperdal pills, Seroquel, Abilify, um, and then, you know, Haldol, again, is more so used on an emergency basis. And then the, like the Vega or Clozaril, and the Clozaril requires, that doesn't happen for everybody, because that requires a special certification for doctors to have before they can actually administer that. Oh, but wow. So, yeah, so more often than that, they have it. It's maybe in Vega. And I think that Vega also has a special certification, but not as high as the Clozaril. Okay. So there are distinctions around who can even administer this medication. Mm-hmm. So for somebody that... Um, has schizophrenia and they can they function can somebody with schizophrenia function fully function on their own or do they need people around them do they need to live with somebody do they need to have like uh, yeah can can they function on their own very much so very much so you know I think it just depends honestly you know certainly in terms of how severe the symptoms are you know but certainly with with medication with family support family support is like key in all of our psychological disorders, but it's particularly key with schizophrenia. Very, very important, you know, because one in terms of social support, but also in terms of pr- promoting healthy communication. Because that double bind that, you know, we talked about, our, you know, in terms of one family member saying one thing and then certainly doing something else, that becomes, you know, triggering and activating like a psychotic break for individuals right. with schizophrenia. So family therapy becomes really key in terms of helping them to learn how to support, you know, people with schizophrenia. And then also just to deal with the stress because it is very demanding to take care and to live with an individual, you know, with schizophrenia. Certainly you love them, but also it's very heartbreaking and it's difficult. Yeah, I'm sure. I think like, and do you, as far as anybody that may be listening that maybe they do have a family member that is dealing with schizophrenia, what are some suggestions uh, that you have for that person, whether it be like somebody's parent that maybe has schizophrenia or maybe somebody has like an, an uncle or a neighbor or a spouse that has schizophrenia? So certainly, you know, finding social support, whether it's friends, other family members, but also like a group, you know, for individuals who, you know, are living with an loved ones with schizophrenia. You know, I think it's really important to find a like-minded group. You know, individuals who are dealing with the same stressors, stressors becomes especially important, especially important for dealing with that and managing that. You know, and then also, you know, certainly establishing boundaries in terms of like what you can and will and will not accept. Right. And it becomes really important for establishing boundaries for yourself, but also for the person with schizophrenia as well. Yeah. And as far as somebody that has schizophrenia and maybe like, is, is, are there any healthy boundaries that maybe they should set up in terms of like their understanding of like, I'm just wondering, is there any advice that you'd have for somebody that's listening and has schizophrenia and it's just maybe having a tough time with it? Very much so in terms of also getting support, you know, for yourself and seeking out therapy and, making sure that you're taking care of yourself psychologically, um, you know, but also creating like a healthy environment to the degree that you can, you know, for like to ensure that it's an environment that feels safe and also one that you feel supported in. I think it's especially important, you know, yeah. identifying like what those um, factors or, or, or those um, things that tend to activate or tend to um, 
um, maybe exacerbate like a psychotic break, you know, mm -hmm. and certainly finding, like being very intentional about avoiding situations that tend to activate that. I think that's especially important. Yeah. And I know that there are a couple of different uh, personality disorders that sound like schizophrenia. Um, the ones that I found are schizoid personality disorder and schizotypal personality disorder. Are they the same as schizophrenia? Are they like under the schizophrenia umbrella or are they completely separate from schizophrenia? Yes. So in terms of schizotypal, these are individuals who exhibit like odd beliefs and they have social problems because of those odd beliefs. So like a person, you know, exhibits like these social and their personal life deficits, their thinking, you know, um, is more so what we characterize as being really odd and like distorted. Maybe they have like body illusions. Um, they also tend not to express emotions in terms of that flat affect that we talked about, you know, in terms of like the schizophrenia that tends to be a lot more um, um, prevalent and certainly an individual with schizotypal. Um, and also like they lack like social relationships and they often have social anxiety. Now in terms of schizoid, schizoid, and again, like, you know, thinking about the spectrum, these are individuals who have a detachment from social relationships and they have difficulty expressing emotions. So it becomes really difficult for them to form social relationships. But honestly, they're quite a indifferent to form social relationships. Mm, you know? Okay. Whereas, you know, in terms of when we think about it as a continuum, maybe the schizotypal individual may be a little bit more open, you know, to forming social relationships because again, because of those odd behaviors or those eccentric beliefs, it makes it really difficult for them to form social relationships. But I mean, but overall, in terms of the social continuum, they're more so on that far left end in terms of more difficulty forming social relationships and being indifferent to forming social relationships. So they're all still, those two personality disorders are still on like the schizophrenia spectrum. Very much kind so. Of the continuum. But mm -hmm. they're just kind of on opposite ends. Very much so. Very okay. much so. And, and, and one of the two, um, you know, it does have a genetic link to schizophrenia. And, and, I, and I think it may be more schizotypal, more so... Not not certainly not as strong as only other associations, but it does have like a, a small genetic link. Okay, interesting. And so it's very interesting how genetics plays a part in in mental mental health disorders. Um, I I want to get into the the other mental health disorder that we're going to be talking about today, and that is bipolar disorder. And this is again a conversation that I've been like I'm, I really want to have Dr. Stevens on here. Um, because you're amazing. And also just, I feel like you break things down really well. So um, we've talked about schizophrenia and I know that there is a, a, an interesting link between the two, but before we get into that, can you tell us like, what is bipolar disorder? So, so bipolar disorder, you know, so you know, if you're Latin roots bi for two, it means two poles. Um, and so these two poles are can typically equal and opposite. You know, so certainly the first pole that we're more familiar with is the depressive pole. So in terms of the low pole. So if you were to think about a graph um, in terms of like functioning and right in the middle is like normal functioning people, you know, tend to have like normal fluctuations up and down days, you know, whether it's traffic, uh, conflict with a peer, work peer, whatever, you know, just normal highs and lows. <clears throat> For a person with, let's say, the unipolar depression, right? So that's one pole they more so um, tend to certainly dip and so have more difficulty with their mood and functioning, and certainly more so than the uh, person without uh, depression. 
that's the one pole there. But also what we see is that bipolar can also be unipolar in the sense that people can experience like one just mania. You know, and so when we think about mania, this includes like <laughs> I've never counted them. It's seven different symptoms, seven different symptoms that um, comprise like a manic episode. And that includes distractibility, impulsivity, um, in terms of grandiosity, in terms of um, fast or pressured speech, fast thinking, over-engagement activities with a high potential for harm, um, sleeplessness, and then thoughtlessness. And, you know, certainly so those different symptoms that comprises a manic episode and a manic episode, a true manic episode occurs within four days, you know, in terms of where a person exhibits, I, I believe, one, if, if it's in terms of um, like, uh, like over elevation of, of, of mood, right, and then like two other symptoms or if it's just irritability and three other symptoms that we have talked about, if they exhibit that within four days, that's what, that's what constitutes a manic episode. Whereas a hypomanic episode, that that's a little bit less severe in a sense where a person, you know, as opposed to being um, much more severe in terms of like the thoughtlessness or over-engagement activities, it still causes problems, but it doesn't cause problems to the same degree. Right. So instead of maybe spending like $2,000, maybe you spend $200. And it still causes problems maybe for the family or for your budget and things of that nature. You know, so the poles here, you know, certainly in terms of the manic, that's one pole. And then the depression is the second pole. Interesting. So in terms of bipolar disorder. So very much opposite and just, just opposite. So depression and manic. I want to go back to the manic symptoms. Can you just go into each of those like seven symptoms and give us a, a little bit of like, what each one actually means. So in terms of, so so we start off with the hallmark symptom in terms of, um, let's see, in terms of, so for like a manic episode, like you start off with this um, just, ex, just, it's not just excitable mood, but it's a over excited, exuberant mood. And it's exuberant mood where a person is just almost bouncing you know, right. and, and you can't quite tether them down to reality, right? We talk about, talk a little bit about schizophrenia in terms of tethering the reality. So they're yeah. just, I can do everything, you know, they're talking so fast, right? And so is that over-exuberant mood, that over-exuberant mood that is then followed by distractibility. So maybe they're going from topic to topic to topic to topic and you can't. So their mm. flow of thinking is very tangential. Right. They go from one topic to the next. You know, oh, that reminds me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't forget about this. And then they're just talking before you know it. You're 10 topics from the original topic. Right. And then in terms of impulsivity, where you tend to do things without thinking, mm -hmm. you know, so it can be certainly that's an example of impulsivity. But maybe somebody invites you to go out to, you know, party and maybe the next day you have to go to work. You need to go to school. Right. And maybe, maybe you could do that at one point. But maybe it's not so smart to do that. It's certainly. You know, certainly yeah. going to be drinking or doing other things, you know, some of that could have negative repercussions. So you just tend to engage and do things without thinking about them. And then grandiosity. The grandiosity is this overinflated sense of self where, let's say, the same scenario that I'm describing, where a person says, oh, yeah, I can go to that party tonight. Then I can come home, write this paper, this 20-page paper that is due by tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. and then get up at 8 o'clock and start school and then do this. 
So mm-hmm. people can do it, right? But how realistic is it that you'd be able to do all of it at the same time? Can you give us another example of, of grandiosity? Because I'm thinking that definitely makes sense, but I also may or may not have done that in college <laughs> just because I thought, just because I could. I Somehow I had a lot of energy back then and right. that is just depleted at this point in my life. Right. But for somebody that may not be in college, maybe um, maybe let's just throw it out there. Maybe it's like a 39-year-old mom and she's got a couple of kids and maybe she's got like two jobs. What does grandiosity look like for someone like that in that situation? So let's say the kids have a play, you know, a school play the next day. You've decided to make their school outfits, you know, the night before. You know, you have two kids in the school play, but you also got to bake brownies. You also have to get ready for work in the morning and prepare this project that you have. Not only that, you have to get up at five in the morning in order to get yourself ready and the kids ready to do this and do that. <clears throat> and so it's, it's not necessarily just the, the goal setting, but it's the idea that you think you can actually do this. Right. It's a little bit of a delusion that you think you could accomplish all of this. The belief that you can actually do it. And mm. certainly, and so, and the thing about it, though, is that at the pace at which the person is working, it looks like they can actually do it. You right. know, in terms of like how fast they're working, right? They're just going and going and going, you know, but they're just sort of operating maybe on fumes at that point, you know, but again, mm. you know, it's just this super inflated belief that they can do these things, right? Or maybe another example of grandiosity in terms of, you know, I know that I'm going to get this, you know, promotion. And you're like, okay, well, what's the evidence that you're going to get it? You know, but you haven't put yourself out there. You haven't applied for it. You don't have the qualifications. Like, what evidence is there? I don't know. Good things just happen to me. And it's not necessarily say that, you know, so you can have positive thinking, you know. But again, it's that commitment, that belief, you know, to this idea. But very little evidence of reality supporting that. Mm. And you know, and it's not necessarily, you know, again, it's one single thing, but you start to see a pattern, you know, with individuals. You're like, you tend to do that a lot. That's interesting. Mm. So it's the grandiosity. And then, of course, the pressure speech, you know. So where you're talking a mile a minute. And I don't know if you all remember, like, the um, the Cosby show where Vanessa's friend, Vanessa's friend. Yeah. She would talk like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm out a minute. And so, and the thing about it is that thoughts are coming that fast as well. And ah. like the thoughts are coming so fast that they can't even get it out their mouth. So, like, it's not noticing that they're slurring their speech, tripping over words. They can't get the thoughts out. They can't get the speech out fast enough because the thoughts are going and they're trying to catch up to what's happening in their head. Right. The Very thing, interesting. Mm hmm. It's really interesting in the sense that we, this is one of the more common symptoms that, you know, I tend to look out for whenever I um, question what a person presents with um, bipolar disorder. It's an over-engagement in activities with a high potential for harm, right? So perhaps maybe alcohol consumption, you know, which I know, again, you know, is a socially accepted, um, acceptable um, moray, social moray in our society. You know, but certainly like the maybe excessive drinking, the excessive drinking, and maybe you're doing like really high risk things, driving, you know, 
And again, like I know this again is a social moray, you know that. I know we say that, you know. Yeah, we don't really it. want people to do to do that. <laughs> no drinking right, and right. driving, but it tends to happen, unfortunately. It tends to happen, and people, are like, oh, you're just buzz, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, certainly, so, so that that's I, I think like that's one of the more common examples that I see, you know, in terms yeah. of, and again, like I said, I don't necessarily just diagnose with that one problem yeah. or that one symptom, but you know, over maybe, let's say, if a person's having multiple sexual partners right right and also you see that with impulsivity where they meet a person they go out they don't know anything about this person and they decide to do this and again it's not necessarily just a single act but it's a pattern mm-hmm. right and again you know it's about certainly knowing the individual and understanding like what the motivation is mm-hmm. you know, interesting so- for and sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just curious for people that um, I know you said that there's like a like a succession of these uh, symptoms that happen over like a certain day span. I think you said four days, right? As mm-hmm. that's happening, are people with bi- bipolar disorder that have a diagnosis and they're in a manic episode, do they know, like, are they aware of being in a manic episode or is there a certain like how does somebody know that they're in a manic episode or do they not know until it's done yeah more often some people do know that they're in a manic episode and a lot of people prefer to be in a manic episode especially when they experience a depressive episode it becomes really right. difficult to do anything so it becomes almost intoxicating you know i'm back to myself you know i'm back to myself i'm doing me I'm doing things, you know, this is how I really am, you know? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but no, not quite like this, you know, right. because certainly like the things that you're doing, you know, certainly because <clears throat> like, for instance, like one person that I work with, they were submitting like so many assignments and it was chicken scratch. They showed it to me. I'm like, okay, let's sit down before you submit this to your teacher, you know, right. to your professor, excuse me. Right. And I'm like, let's look at this. Let's read this together. Right. You know, because again, like that hyperinflated sense of self, the grandiosity, they were just writing off a of fumes. Yeah. You know, again, that's a level of like, you know, some of somebody in school, but perhaps like another individual, like a person, you know, 39 year old mother. Okay, let's think about this. You know, looking at the costumes. What was that pressure like? Yeah. And it was really tough, wasn't it? yeah you're really stressed did you get any sleep how did you do in your project what kind of feedback did you receive from your supervisor the next day when you came in super tired unprepared ill-prepared for this project that you needed to present so it's almost like they realized that that it's it's the hindsight when they realized they had a manic episode potentially um for some of them okay and so for some it's like you're just you're just talking and talk you know and so they're not quite at the place to where they um, are ready for that insight work. They're like, I don't need help for this. I know it's going to need the help when the depression comes because depression is about to come. So I think in terms of that insight around the depression, the insight around depression is spot on. <laughs> Depressed, the insight around the manic episode, not so much. Not so much, especially if it seems to be like a relief compared to the depressive episode. Mm-hmm. So is, I know we talked about two different polls um, for bipolar disorder, the manic and the depressive, is there any in between, or are people with bipolar disorder constantly pinging from one end to the other? So, you know, a little bit earlier, I mentioned that 
there's an equally and opposite, you know, pole. So for the height of the of the manic episode, it speaks to the depth of the depression. Oh wow. Okay. So and that that's been bared out by research as well. You know, and certainly like the earlier that you have a manic episode, the more frequent you have those episodes, and certainly they tend to happen like a little bit longer, you know, until you actually treat it. Because now <clears throat> where our average was 12 years for identifying and diagnosing bipolar disorder. We've now reduced that to about six or seven years. So that's, you know, certainly, you know, I think an advancement for the field because one, you know, like we're looking out for these symptoms more so people are more aware about these symptoms for, you know, certainly like podcasts like yours and other awareness um, media in order to bring more um, insight about this problem happening. So people are more, you know, understanding about what's happening to them. So they come in sooner you know for treatment right right and as far as i know we talked with uh, schizophrenia in particular about um the age at which it usually kind of kind of starts to show up so when how early can signs of bipolar disorder show up so they can show up as, i mean as early as 19 because you, you won't necessarily diagnose a person under 18 with uh, bipolar disorder um, the new DSM-5 has a new disorder, this, actually I think it was a DSM, was it a four? Maybe it was a four, don't quote me there, but the <clears throat> dysregulation mood, excuse me, the, <laughs> I'm forgetting now the name, but it's DMDD. DMDD? Yes, it is the, oh, y'all like I'm a bad psychologist, I'm a bad psychologist. No, it's okay, <laughs> there's a million and one things and this DSM-5 book is heavy. So yeah. um, disruptive mood, disre- dysregulation. Yes, disorder. thank you. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I need it and I, I'm, on, I'm on Google typing away, but yes. <laughs> disruptive mood, dysregulation disorder, right? Yeah. And so that has become like the new catch-all for children with bipolar disorder, right? We show okay. the early signs of bipolar disorder. More often than not, when they've been diagnosed with DMDD, there's more of a high certainty that a person, you know, may... Um, exhibit or is exhibiting, you know, signs of bipolar disorder, you know, but one of the things we want to be careful about, you know, certainly is pigeonholing children, mm-hmm. you know, at such a young age. And so that's what that, that diagnosis tries to avoid, you know, is to pigeonhole children. Okay. Because certainly it could just be due to hormonal changes and maybe they, those hormonal changes, you know, they revert mm-hmm. back to, you know, certainly more um, what we call normal functioning. Right. Is there, I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So just going back to bipolar disorder, as far as like the two different types, is there like bipolar one and bipolar two and like, which one is manic, which one is depressive? Can you just give us a little background on which one is which? Yes. So in terms of a bipolar one um, diagnosis, that corresponds more so to a manic episode, you know, in terms of the high um, severity or more severe distractibility, more severe impulsivity, more severe over-engagement activities with high potential for um, harm. Like in terms of those very severe symptoms, that's a manic episode. So it's those, that over-engagement coupled with like the over-excitability, the exuberant uh, mood that happens within like four days or, you know, so when or if they're hospitalized within two days. That's a manic episode. That's a manic episode and a depressive episode. And so that's a one-on-one um, correspondence 
one manic episode and one depressive episode. Whereas for bipolar two uh, disorder, that more so um, speaks to the hypomania. So a little bit less severe than a manic episode. So it's still those um, seven or eight symptoms that we described a little bit earlier, but less severe, um, less severe consequences, less severe potential for harm, but still it, it, it impairs functioning to a significant degree for that particular individual. And then it also corresponds to um, a depressive episode that it isn't as severe as one for the uh, bipolar one, but those depressive episodes tend to be longer in a bipolar two, as opposed to a bipolar one. Okay. Because, you know, when you think about it, when a person is very manic, they want to try to, you know, motivated to try to get out of the depressive episode even more so. Right. That makes sense. Thank you for that. As, um, as far as the, the the crossover or like where do schizophrenia and bipolar disorder crossover? What do they have in common? Is there a genetic link? Like what, can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So in terms of, you know, so we talked a little bit about schizoaffective disorder, you know, um, earlier in, in, in our show and, you know, so the schizoaffective disorder, I think it beautifully ties in these two disorders, you know, so for the schizophrenia piece, but also from the bipolar piece. You know, and certainly um, like the features of the grandiosity. I think you certainly see features of both disorders there in terms of the impulsivity, the thoughtlessness, the overengagement activities. You know, so it will be coded a little bit differently for schizophrenia. But, you know, so we see like those commonalities in terms of those two disorders. And then, of course, there's that strong genetic link. And that strong genetic link is that about 30% of shared variants in terms of all the things that we could possibly explain in terms of what causes this link between schizophrenia <clears throat> and, and bipolar, we see that there's some 30, 36% shared variance in terms wow. of how we go about like looking at this overlap. So that, you know, I think is pretty significant. Right. You know, it's, it's like it's, it's very high. 40% of all the ways that we could explain, you know, in terms of how these things are related, we see that there's a genetic link. That explains forty percent of the variance, and that again, you know, that that's a pretty high number. That's very high. Disorders. Yeah, that's really high. And is that, and just in layman's terms, does that mean like if I have an uncle, or if I have like a grandparent that had bipolar disorder, maybe? I mean, I don't think a lot of our grandparents got diagnosed with these things. So, if it sounds like maybe I have bipolar disorder. And there's a grandparent that has similar uh, personality traits and maybe similar habits. And maybe people always say, oh, you, you remind me of, uh, of Medea. I know some people call their grandma that. But you, you remind me of, you know, your grandma or your grandpa. Mm -hmm. is, is that the link that's happening? Mm -hmm. Very much so. Okay. You know, certainly in terms of like first degree relatives, in terms of a parent, right? A parent and then certainly... Um, an aunt or uncle or a grandparent. Okay. You know, like those like relatives there, you know, are more so like what we speak to, like when we're looking at like the genetic contribution, you know, and then like second degree relatives heard of relatives, you know, one degree away from that. Okay. You know, and that, you know, is more so a little bit less frequent, but, you know, so we still see that there's, you know, somewhat of a genetic link, you know, between like second degree relatives, but more so in terms of first degree relatives. 
they see a strong genetic contribution. Okay. And so that means if somebody is schizophrenic um, or has bipolar disorder or their spouse or the person that they are creating a little baby with has schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, that there is a chance that the baby may also at some point in life develop the same disorder? Exactly. There is a chance. There is a chance. You know, so like we protect against that through, you know, sort of providing like a very rich and healthy environment for children. You know, so right. not only does it produce like really better outcomes, but it also prevents development of mental health disorders. Right. It's not a surefire way, but I think it's one of the ways that we prevent the risk, a buffer against the risk. Right. And I just want to go back, going back to bipolar disorder. Um, I know we talked about the treatment for schizophrenia, but what does treatment look like for bipolar disorder? So for bipolar disorder, it's medication. You know, and so medication starts off with lithium. Um, and lithium, you know, it is hepatoxic in terms of like it destroys the liver. It does, you know, but it is one of the most effective agents for treating bipolar disorder, bar none. You know, and so we have lithium and it declines of itself because it is, it does wonders, you know, for individuals. And certainly I am a proponent, you know, of people certainly using medication, psychotropic medication in a healthy way. And then, of course, after that, we have the mood stabilizers, Lamictal or Lamotrigine. That's another medication. Um, Depakote, um, that's more so like you go into the um, anti-seizure medications um, that tend, so like the Lamotrigine, that's more so like your mood stabilizers, Depakote. um, And in each of those, I should say, you always have to test and look at like different labs because certainly in terms of the hepatotoxicity, and then other um, implications for your body. So you're constantly doing labs for these medications to make sure that your levels aren't too high. So there's, you're always being tracked just in case. So then if lithium is like the the go-to and it's the the best medication and somebody has bipolar disorder, do they have to take this for their entire lives? And how does that get regulated? And like, is there anything else that you can do to protect their liver? Like, it seems like a like a tough trade off to be like, okay, well my my um, I, I'll manage my disorder better, my mental health disorder better, but then my physical health is taking a hit. Right. So like, so like, what often happens? Like, you might do a drug holiday, you know, maybe the drug holiday from the the lithium to the motrogen, you know, and so you taper up because again, that's not another drug that you just start taking, you know, at a high level. Right. And of course, during that time, people may be going in and out of hypomanic and manic episodes because they're not reaching the therapeutic dose. But -hmm. again, you're just tapering up in order to acclimate your body to the higher levels of medication to reach that that, um, therapeutic dose. The same case with Depakote, you know, another mood stabilizer. You're constantly getting lab tested and then they're tapering up in order to get to that therapeutic dose. You know, so you can certainly switch off, you know, certainly some doctors do that, some medical um, prescribers, you know, do that. And then, of course, you know, some with the assistance of therapy to help the transition and acclimate through that really difficult time. Right. You know, really helpful. And that, and actually, bipolar disorder, when I think about it, like, that's the only disorder that I can think about that we don't actually have, like, a EBP, like an empirically based treatment solely for bipolar disorder. Interesting. Interesting. I know. It is. And so for somebody that may be listening that has bipolar disorder and maybe they are, um, maybe they've just like recently gotten diagnosed. Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you have any, like any advice for that person? Yes, there is hope, right? And we have medications and treatments that work, you know, and so these treatments that work, you know, certainly speak to like the ability to be able to like to regain some control over your life. You know, because I know a lot of people who, you know, experience like a manic or hypomanic episode, they feel very much out of control. You know, whether it's the anger rages or in terms of impulsivity or just doing things that they later regret, they feel very much out of control. And it's a very distressing feeling to have. You know, when you're doing things, it's almost like you're behind the blinds and this person is, you know, doing things that you're like, no, and you yeah. can't quite stop it, you know, from happening. And so, you know, so in, in terms of that, you know, to know that there are professionals who care about you, who are invested in your well-being, who do want to help you. Yeah. No, thank you for that. And just one more thing, as far as somebody that may, maybe their spouse has bi bipolar disorder, maybe their their child has bipolar disorder, or maybe their sister or sibling or best friend has bipolar disorder. Do you have any advice for them in terms of like offering support? Very much so, you know, I think in terms of, you know, offering them unconditional love and support, you know, just letting them know that you are there for them. You know, I think in terms of, you know, being able to provide good boundaries, you know, for them and encouraging the individual with um, bipolar disorder to establish, to identify and establish, you know, boundaries for themselves. You know, and I think also, you know, in terms of encouraging them, because again, that's another major hurdle in terms of getting individuals with bipolar disorder to receive treatment. That's the biggest hurdle that partly explains the, like, like the gap in terms of why we're not able to diagnose so quickly. So encouraging that individual, you know, to get treatment, whether it starts off with the psych psychotherapist, you know, but just getting connected with treatment is so very important. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate you breaking breaking down those two very complex, it seems, uh, disorders and really diving in, doing like a deep dive into both of them. Um, I hope that anybody's listening that um, either if you've been diagnosed with one or two of these disorders, or maybe you are finding some, like some of those little like bells are going off in your head, like, oh, that may be me. That may be something I've, I've experienced. Um, or that is something that maybe a loved one has experienced. Like, please don't, please feel, please reach out for support. The support is out there. Um, if you have questions, uh, don't be afraid to ask them. Don't be afraid to reach out and ask. Um, and I will also put some information in the description about these two disorders. So if you are um, a nerd like me and want to go, go through and read more about it, uh, there'll be more resources in the description for you to to keep digging around and learn more. Um, I do before we want before we wrap up, we are going to just go back to our mind game segment really quickly, and I will go ahead and give you the answer. Um, I will give you just a brief little recap of what the mind games question was, um, and it is a a disorder that's a mental health disorder that includes a combination of persistent problems such as difficulty paying attention, hyperactivity, and impulsive behavior. Some of the symptoms include problems uh, focusing on a task, uh, excessive activity or restlessness, poor planning, frequent moves, mood swings, low frustration toler tolerance, hot temper, problems following, following through and completing tasks. I'm reading way too fast. Uh, or trouble coping with stress and impulsivity. So 
the answer for this episode's mind game question is attention deficit hyperactive disorder, specifically adult attention deficit hyperactive hyperactivity disorder. So um, this has always been an, another interesting disorder that I feel like a lot of the conversation is around children and there's not much conversation about adults living with ADHD. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that soon you guys will be hearing an episode directly from somebody, a black woman that has ADHD and is living with it and is managing it. So, um, but if you, like I said, if you want to do a deep dive into ADHD, I will throw in this resource that I've used for the mind game segment into the description so you can nerd out and just read all the things, all the articles. Um, but thank you so much, Dr. Stevens, for uh, joining me for another episode. I'm always grateful whenever you join and can really break this stuff down for us uh, regular people that aren't mental health professionals, but are genuinely curious about what's going on. Thank you so much for having me and happy holidays. Yes. Happy holidays to you, Dr. Stevens and happy holidays to everybody that is listening. Um, I wish you a safe and happy holiday and, you know, on your long drives, on your free time, um, download some more episodes, listen to some more episodes, share some more episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, hopefully you do, because you made it this far, um, go ahead and give us a rating wherever you're listening, whether it be Spotify, Apple, wherever it is, uh, give us a rating. Hopefully it's, hopefully it's five stars, fingers crossed. Um, but hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing. Uh, give us a rating. I'd really, really appreciate it. And to everybody that is listening, whether you are new, whether you listen to all the episodes, um, I just want to say I appreciate you. I'm thankful for you. And have a wonderful holiday. And I will see you on the flip side. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. No matter where you are in the world, I really appreciate your support. See you again on the next episode, but until then, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 and on Twitter at Anxious Black Girls. That's Anxious BLK Girls. And remember, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to struggle in silence. The more we talk about it, the more we heal.